Hello, Jews who are tuning in for this special little mini-sode. This is Unorthodox, a weekly, and in this case, semi-weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer. I got no Liel. I got no Stephanie. It's just me and a special all-Gentile episode. I had exactly one person in my Facebook feed during this election season who was pimping Donald Trump. Um, It's a guy whom I went to college with back in the mid-90s at Yale, and he dropped out early in his junior year to say that he was sick of our elitism and he was going back to Tennessee where he was from. Uh, His name was Bob Barnes, and he had become this sort of campus figure as the kind of um, outspoken white, southern white, rural agrarian populist. Um, He identified pretty much with liberal or leftist politics, but from a very sort of populist uh, New Deal angle, which was, you know, help the farmers, help the union workers. And he had a lot of scorn, as I recall, for what he saw as limousine liberals and elitist liberals. So in some ways, he seemed to culturally identify more with uh, the small community of campus conservatives, even though his politics were different from theirs. And then he dropped out, as I said, he he announced and um, and he said, I'm, I'm going back to Tennessee. I think he said something like, I'm going back to drink my sour mash whiskey and, and root for the volunteers. And he transferred to the University of Tennessee and nobody ever knew what became of him. About six months ago, I discovered through Facebook's algorithm, it just suggested, hey, maybe be friends with this guy. He had become a lawyer with a specialty in fighting the IRS on behalf of the little guy. And in fact, I discovered through some Googling, he was Wesley Snipes's lawyer in that big lawsuit um, five or 10 years ago in which Wesley Snipes got off on charges that he had um, failed to pay tens of millions of dollars in back taxes. Bob Barnes was the guy who got him off. It turns out that he also has a sideline in gambling, and he went to London where the betting markets had Trump down at 41 odds. You put 125 down on him? Yep. And so how'd you make out? Uh, Very, very well. (laughs) Do you mind? Can you you tell us how much you won? Um, It'll be about a half a million. Real? So you... Wow. So, all right, well, let's back up a second. So um, I haven't seen you for 22 years. How you been? <laughs> pretty good, pretty good. It's been a uh, uh, busy uh, 22 years, but it's been a productive one so far. So my recollection from when we knew each other in college, and I remember you, I don't know how well you remember me, um, but my recollection is that you identified back then politically as a kind of, I'm going to speak... I'm going to speak in stereotypes here, right? As a kind of populist sure. Southern agrarian sympathizer, is that how, how accurate is that? Yeah, that, that, I would say populist, just populist in general. Uh, that uh, I had identified that way since I was 15 or 16. And so, I mean, do you still? So, where are you these days? Like, what are your politics now? Because I, you were, I think, the one when we became Facebook friends maybe six months ago. I think you became the one open Trump enthusiast in out of my thousand Facebook friends. Um, right. So where, where would you have your politics changed or is this a continuation of the same? Uh, pretty much a continuation of the same. So, I mean, I, the last time I voted until this election was uh, back in the uh, 1990. Actually, the first time I voted, I voted for Bill Clinton in 1992 at Yale. Uh, and I had voted uh, since until this election uh, because I didn't think either party really represented I think it was much different. Now, I had been betting on elections all the way through, but hadn't been, uh, wasn't personally committed one way or the other. Uh, I just cared about who, whether my bet would win 
but this was the first election I actually uh, uh, cared about who won otherwise. So what was it about Trump that suited your politics that made you decide to vote for the first time in, uh, what, 24 years? Uh, you know, when I, originally when I tuned in, I was just watching the election process for the sole purposes of placing a bet. Um, and usually it was more modestized than uh, and in watching Trump's speeches, I was surprised. There were two issues that I really care about. Everything else I consider secondary, which is trade policy and what I would loosely call war slash empire policy. So I wanted a different kind of trade policy, more of an old school industrial trade policy. And, uh, and secondly, wanted a, uh, a policy of being less interventionist, uh, in the, in the world, including not having a cold war with Russia, including getting out of NATO to some degree, things like that. that no one had ever voiced until Trump. And I was shocked that he was voicing those, and that's why I became a fan. So, um, you know, I think some of the people I know who are either voted for Trump or sat this out, basically the anti-Hillary people, were nevertheless kind of on the same page that a lot of the pro-Hillary people were in thinking that Trump was pretty loathsome. And so they, they would look to, you know... Language he'd used about women, language he'd used about Mexicans, immigrants, what have you, um, suspicions that there were anti-Semites in his community. Um, how do you read those fears? Do you, do you dismiss them? Do you assimilate them and say, but there are bigger things at stake? Like, what do you say to that concern? Sure. Uh, you know, my general sense was, um, uh, for the most part, I, I did care. I, I considered them secondary and uh, not, the way I looked at it is, you know, we live in a representative democracy, and there's a lot of people that focus on the representative component. I focus more on the democracy component. So to me, the personality profile, the biographical tendencies, the social symbolism of the individual doesn't really matter. I only care about, okay, how is that going to translate into policy A, B, C, or D? And so to me, whether they said things the right way or the wrong way, whether they had good attitudes or bad attitudes, I only cared about their policies. Uh, you give an example, years ago, there was a guy who ran for the governorship of Mississippi back during the segregationist time period uh, in the early 1900s, who's clearly you know, hardcore racist, but uh, his actual policies were actually very, for, for that time and place, very progressive. He got rid of the convict lease system and a bunch of other things that for the African-American community in Mississippi were actually positive. I'm the kind of person I only care about the policies that are going to impact people. The rest I consider uh, uh, secondary because I only care about the democracy oh. I'd far prefer a system where we didn't vote for people and we vote directly on policy, but we don't have that. So, I mean, I, I too, I tend to agree with you, actually. Like, I'm one of those people who has, you know, who looks at Trump's policy and say, well, I too would like us to be a bit less interventionist. I too would like us to pay a bit more attention to how trade policy affects um, all of us. You know, I will tell you my fear, and then I'd love to hear your reaction to it. You know, my fear is that his his contempt, and I th- I don't think that's too strong a word. You could you could push back on me if you wanted, but that his contempt for institutions like the press, which I think are an important check on corruption from both parties, could prove really really detrimental to to the health of the republic. Right? That if he really freezes out the media, that essentially then he could fall prey what any leader could fall prey to, which is the you know the blandishments of power and and the way that power. Um, you know, corrupts. What do you make of that fear that I have, that, that electing someone with that kind of contempt for um, for the media is scary? I think it, it reminds me a lot of uh, uh, of other campaigns that have been like that, the old school populist campaign, similar in that regard. We haven't seen it in a while, but 
people like Huey Long in the 30s and Big Jim Folsom in Alabama in the 40s. And there was a guy in my hometown, Bookie Turner, in the 60s, um, who did very interested in that concern with the president. They disrespected uh, certain checks on the democratic institutions that they saw as a, a, an elite monopoly that was actually threatening real democracy being implemented. And people fell on different sides of it. But ultimately, most of the fears didn't come to fruition, in part because institutions like the media have so much have so much power and influence here. It's pretty tough for any one individual to take them on. And yet the secondary component is this. It's what I used to argue with my old uh, anti-war friends back with Nader when I represented him in 2004 legally, which was that the uh, that to a certain degree, if you want uh, something to not happen, that you're best voting the opposite way. And what I mean by that is this way. This. I always thought that W winning uh, and him doing the Iraqi war maybe discredited the war in a way that never would have happened if Al Gore had won, but had done the same war. And like Obama has disappointed me gravely at uh, the way he's gone after whistleblowers. But because he's Obama, very few on the left talk about it much. I mean, Hillary could joke about drone bombing Julian Assange. Now, if somebody like Trump even thought about that, there's going to be backlash and, 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 and people are going to be crying out in the streets about it left and right. So I think ironically, because the, the left will be more active at protecting free speech when it's a conservative in the White House. So the, uh, I find it tends, it tends to be sort of a flip side. I, I worry more where a Republican could get away with something because of the nature of the policy. But that's one area where I don't worry about it as much because I think it's harder for him to do. Same like surveillance. I don't really agree with Trump on the surveillance policy. I agree more with Ed Snowden. But Trump is not going to be able to get away with that the way Obama could. I mean, Snowden made a little bit of headway, but outside of the sort of young independent left, there was not nearly enough criticism of, of fact that you know, his NSA people just flat out lied to Congress, just left and right. That that would be uh, a six-month scandal in a Trump administration. It was a blip on the radar screen in the Obama administration. Well, so I think that's where I have sort of a counterintuitive kind of logic. Well, I, I mean, I hear that, but it actually seems that Trump supporters are unmovable, right? I mean, if, if, if you say it'd be a six-month scandal, you know, things like his kind of, you know, the way he talked about women, uh, you know, would have, did, I mean, if Romney had been caught on tape, if there had been one 10 second clip of Romney saying really, really crude things about women four years ago, it probably would have ended him. And, and with Trump, I think it's fair to say that he could have been caught on tape toward the end talking about and and it, it wouldn't have cost him many votes that we seem to have lost. His supporters seem to have no capacity for thinking less of him no matter what. So why are we to think that that the country needle would move at all if he turned out to be really anti-free speech, anti-media, and, and sort of crypto-fascist? Well, I think that's where aspects of the media has to regain their credibility. Uh, I think what hurt them vis-a-vis Trump was uh, that they had you know cried wolf so often with things that turned out not to have credibility, that when certain things came up that uh, hit him more, uh, then it did have the same effect. And so I think that that's a part of the equation. But I think for the most part, vis-a-vis the political process, you basically have a 40-40-20 split in the country, and the 20% is still persuadable. They just decided they cared more about change in this election than things they didn't like about Trump. If, if those things totally did hurt Trump, his favorable ratings wouldn't have stayed in the 40s. Uh, so it still impacted him. It's just they're willing to look past it if he will make the changes he says, but he can't really go in that negative direction and have the same ability.
So I guess uh, what, he has to deliver positively and avoid the negative as much as possible. But I guess what I would say, so let me speak as, you know, we had a little bit of, the, one of the mo- rare moments where I thought you were perhaps being, uh, you know, out of many Facebook interactions where I thought you were either being disingenuous or perhaps willfully blind was over the, the Star of David on the background of money uh, tweet. And you were saying, well, that's not a Star of David because Star of David shows the outlines of both overlaid triangles and this was just a sheriff's star. But, you know, and that was something where I was, thought, well, look, number one, I've seen a lot of Stars of David and some of them look the way you're saying and a lot of them look the way this looked. And every Jew I know looked at that and said it's a Star of David uh, on a background of money and, and felt that was like, Beyond dog whistle, that was like, that was just anti-Semitism, right? But let's assume that's us in our crazy, overly sensitive echo chamber. We want a country where everyone's horrified on our behalf when we're terrified, right? That, that that's what that's what nobility and fellow feeling and decency and virtue is. Is that if people are scared and they're your fellow citizens, you get scared for them. Why is it unreasonable of me to ask, you know? some Michigander to to care that I feel that way and, and that, that having a President Trump scares me for that reason. Well, I think people pay attention to certain aspects of that. The, I think that, uh, but I think it sort of varies. Like that was one where when I saw it, it didn't, I didn't process anything to me. Um, and it was, it was one where there was just a big gap between perception um, as to that particular one. That, that, that was not, now, it's possible somebody that originally designed that thought something, I, you know, I have no idea. Uh, but it was something that it, it uh, showed me that there was just a huge gap of perception as to how something could be seen and how something could be understood. Um, and I don't think that one was uh, intentional at all. But I understand that certain people are going to see what they're going to see and that they believe what they believe. Um, and there's really nothing that can put that to rest aside from watching him actually govern. Uh, but I think he, because of that pressure that exists, um, he's under more pressure than a typical person to be careful of how he actually governs that reason. I think people would be surprised. There's not going to be the, uh, the, the, the wacky extremism that they thought might be associated with Trump is not going to come about. Well, I hope you're right. But I mean, let's, let's make it a little more personal. Like, why don't why aren't you ever outraged on on our behalf on the behalf of friends of yours who are outraged or or in other words what we want to feel better is solidarity and what we tend to get and I would say sometimes from you but also from a lot of other Trump supporters is scorn for being worried and afraid. Interesting. The um because just because my reaction was totally different. That was when I saw that I didn't see anything hostile, so it was just just my native reaction. Right. But then having been informed, I mean, we all live in our own echo chambers. I can tell you that if you walked into sort of broadly speaking, the sort of Jewish media as it moves from and I mean, the sort of the, the media that covers Jews, I don't mean the, the Jewish controlled media per se. Right. Uh-huh. But, you know, you move from yeah. far left all the way, all the way to kind of center right. I mean, all the way, you know, pr- pretty broad. Everyone felt it. Everyone was pretty scared. And we, you know, people were still saying that. I mean, what people are saying is Trump needs to come out and say, Jews are welcome members of this country. Muslims are. Latinos are. I'm here to govern for everyone, you know. And when we say that, we don't hear his supporters saying, yeah, he really does have to say that. Like, we love his economic policies, but he does have to say things like that because he scared a lot of people. What we hear is derision for wanting to be reassured. Yeah, I think that's in part because it's not something that that, uh, 
people uh, that are that are for Trump really care about that much. So, so they're not they don't see it as a big issue. So it's a total perception gap as to the significance of the issue. Like I'll give you a flip side of it. There's a lot of law enforcement people that think Obama doesn't care about white cops and doesn't mind if they get shot and killed, and they think that the left has done very little to say anything, and in fact, Obama has inspired and incited racial violence. I think that's an overreaction on their part, um, but, but that's just, that becomes a perception gap. Those where people see something, and they have radically different impressions of it, and one side wanting the other side to recognize their perception doesn't bridge the gap that there's two radically different perceptions from the inception. But you seem to take that as sort of a given rather than something to be worked against, right? I mean, I think there's enormous handwriting. Yeah, I think, I, think that's, I think that's very hard to work against. I think it, this campaign, is, uh, watching it and being you know, part of it from a public discipline perspective, has just reinforced that. I found that uh, there's really, it's like Scott, everything Scott Adams writes about confirmation bias and the rest. I've always sort of believed, and from my trial practice, I've believed, but it's been radically reinforced by, by this campaign. And then I didn't realize how much, I think a lot of what you're talking about is a blowback uh, on political correctness in general. Like, there's this whole Gamergate community that's on Reddit uh, that I didn't even know existed. I didn't even know what Gamergate was. I saw this sort of young, conservative, yeah, yeah. populist type sewer. You know, all that stuff. Um, and it, it's clear they feel, oh, I'll give you an example. I have friends uh, who will not talk about their Trump support publicly, will not talk about it with their wife. They feel so socially shamed and guilt to even say what they feel, that something is going wrong when we've got to that point. Um, so there has to be some way to bridge that gap that's different, that somehow is non-accusatory. So, uh, I mean, I understand what you're saying. People want sympathy and empathy for the fear of, of racial hatred through any kind of symbolism that they associate with it and want recognition that people condemn that. Um, the flip side is people feel that they've been sort of wrongfully blamed, wrongfully accused, and that any time they apologize, they'll just it'll be treated as affirmation or confirmation of the accusation in the first instance. So I, that's you know there's, there's a gap there to work on, but it's a gap that's on both sides. Um, I mean, will you join me in saying that we should be working on it on both sides? Right? I mean, we don't. Oh, absolutely. Oh, of course, absolutely. I, I, mean, I agree with that entirely. I've been trying to figure it out as I went through it because I was startled by the different kinds of reactions that were taking place, the different kinds of interpretations. I didn't realize just how big the gap was. I knew the gap existed, but it was like the take that 2009 book, The Big Sword, and you put it on steroids. That's where we're currently at. You have people who, it's like eyewitness testimony. It's so unreliable, but it's, it's times 10. People are seeing totally different events and can't really communicate across the bridge without feeling bad at the end of the engagement. But I mean, don't you, I guess, you know, I hear what you're saying about you care about policies, not the people, but I sort of felt we'd arrived at a place where to secure some of the gains that women and minorities have made towards just basic decent treatment, right? That you don't call them certain names, uh, that you don't belittle them, right? Whatever your feelings of policy or affirmative action or equal rights amendment or whatever are, that you just don't sure. use certain names or belittle them. And that now we're at a place where we have a president who, you know, certainly belittles women, right? I think a lot of us felt no matter what his policies are, there's something so great at stake about basic human equality that that should be a non-starter. In other words, that, that basically we can't have presidents who, you know, talk about women that way. Um, I guess what I'm hearing you saying is like, I'm overly concerned with that. That's not so important. Uh, for me, the policy matters far more. I mean, that, that's just my own belief. 
I guess I deeply misunderstood. I mean, I guess for the average Trump voter, right, or, or for many Trump voters, it doesn't matter if people have expressed really, really racist and sexist views if the policies line up, that, that it's not a disqualifier. I think, well, I think they have different interpretations. I think they don't interpret most of the statements or events as uh, uh, really racist or really sexist or more so than, than what goes on in politics in general. Um, so I think that's part of it. And then the other part of it is I think they do think of it all as secondary to uh, to certain policies because it's what's going to improve my life. That uh, And I think they have a general distrust of knowing what's true about any person personally, what their intentions are, what their motivations are, whether they're good person, bad person. Um, and to some degree, this is, I was talking the other day, this is derivative of, of Bill. I mean, Clinton really put a death nail in trying to personalize politics of a certain kind. And once he succeeded, and succeeded in large part on behalf of the feminist left who advocated for him during that process, um, it was going to be hard to repersonalize politics again uh, because the, less, the, the, the message sent to all of Christian conservative America back in the late 90s was, no, 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 personal morality does not matter. All that matters is public policy. Well, it's going to be hard to turn around and say, no, 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 personal morality does matter uh, when it's on the flip side of the equation. You know, one reason it's hard to take your reassurances as seriously as I want to is because, you know, not everyone who looks like Trump ends up a Putin, but everyone who's going to end up a Putin probably starts off looking like Trump. In other words, with a kind of simplistic black-white worldview, a sort of nationalism, skepticism of internationalism, real sort of enmity toward the free press, um, and that kind of megalomania that I perceive, okay? What would Trump have to do that would make you think that he could end up like a Putin or an Erdogan in Turkey? What should we be looking for? Yeah, it would be uh, it would be actual bad policy. So, you know, the, it would be uh, whatever that, you know, policy may be, but it would be some sort, whether it be, a, you know, going into wars he said he wouldn't go into, whether it would be uh, certain degrees of... Uh, uh, of domestic policy that's you know truly dangerous or right. if he did what FDR did you know I mean things like that obviously would be off the chart I just don't anticipate anything like that uh, that's why like when I've asked my liberal friends it's like that exact variation of that same question they don't really have like a precise list like look it's more vague and obscure and arcane um, so to me I, I don't see any particular policy he's discussed that would have that impact. Uh, well, my, I mean, my list would basically be would be finding ways to threaten and bully the press would be um, would be lawsuit Peter Thiel type funded lawsuits against, you know, basically to do the press what Scientology did to them, um, which is, you know, inundate uh, reporters with personal lawsuits, um, reporters who aren't necessarily indemnified or indemnified enough that they could afford to fight or lose the lawsuits. If you do that to 100 Washington reporters which is the kind of thing Peter Thiel could personally fund, you'd essentially get, you know, whatever coverage you wanted. Is, is that, is that paranoid of me? Uh, uh, well, you look at Trump's history, he talks a lot about that, but he never does it. So that's one thing. But the second component is that part actually doesn't bother me because I have trust in the jury system. Um, and I have a different take on that in the sense that, it's like a dispute with Floyd Abrams that he seems to associate the First Amendment with only his clients own it, nobody else does. Um, I think that there's a balance there, and I think that big media has misused uh, a lot of its influence and power, but the reality is I don't see anybody meaningfully checking that anytime soon beyond their own credibility. 
the truth is the biggest tool big media has is its credibility. The more it has credibility in the public, the more it has influence. The more its credibility diminishes, no number of lawsuits is going to eradicate. Um, but I don't see, I don't see there being uh, uh, any risk that actually occurs. Um, okay, so some predictions. So how do you think... I don't know. Give me some predictions. What, how's, who's Trump going to appoint? How's he going to govern? Is he going to be popular two years from now and four years from now? I, I think if things can, I think the left has an opportunity, a window of opportunity to rebuild its connections to a lot of uh, working class voters in the Midwest. Uh, because in a normal election, Trump would have won by a little bit, would have won by a bigger march, give a change electorate that he enjoyed and the weakness of Hillary's candidacy. Um, so I think that it's going to it's going to be a twofold factor. It's how does if the left responds with riots and worrying about the focus is on identity politics, they're they're not speaking to that voter in in, in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, Wisconsin. Uh, for Trump, he's got to deliver substantively. He's got to he I mean, he's, he already has a win in the sense of TPP, um, but the he's got to not get into dumb wars. He's got to do something on immigration control. There's not going to be mass deportations, but. Uh, you know, send criminals over and do some sort of secure border that the people have confidence in is back to a democratic system, a little bit democratic system. Um, and then he's got to try to deliver something on trade jobs. My guess is, at least if Wall Street's reaction is correct, that he's going to actually do a much bigger stimulus package than Obama ever talked about. And he needs it. He needs a very visual infrastructure plan where people driving through places like Youngstown see some project that they connect to Trump. That's the key. They, they've got to see him doing substantive material things like Roosevelt, 1935, to uh, to that they say, okay, he delivered on trying to create jobs for us. He delivered on trying to improve our community. If he doesn't do that, he loses. Uh, if he does do that, then he'll win re-election. Is there any way from your side where you, you sort of are more in touch with people who are feel victimized by political correctness or by the left side of, of the culture divide. Is there any way that a Democrat could stand by their, some of their base, which is to say, uh, you know, women concerned with abortion rights, gay people concerned with rights for, for queer people, uh, trans rights insofar as it exists, which seems to be a bathroom issue in a few states, not much more. Is there any way they could not sell out those constituencies and, and, and have policies that still honor those constituencies as they see it, but also be appealing to uh, some of the working class, let's say deep north Rust Belt voters, or is or do they have to pick? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the Democratic Party had that candidate, Bernie Sanders, and somebody like you know, I mean, that's where Michael Moore is on the right message, saying, look, let's not focus on calling these people racist. Let's look at why they're angry, upset. Elizabeth Warren even adopted that same protocol. I don't think she would be the best candidate, but but I mean, Bernie was intensely popular in Wisconsin. That's popular mission. Pennsylvania less so, um, but very popular in, in the upper Midwest, very popular in Minnesota, very popular in Iowa, very popular in northern Maine. Um, you know, Bernie would have beat Trump. Uh, there's no doubt about that whatsoever. I was one of the only people that was a max contributor to both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Um, so I have, you know, so I have no doubt that Bernie would have won. And it's, I don't know if Bernie's going to be that guy who's getting a little older, so so forth. Um, the key for, to me for the Democratic Party, aside from the ideological approach. In other words, if, if, if it stays on, okay, we're just going to hit Trump or where we think he's vulnerable on these uh, racial identity related issues and gender issues, et cetera, well, that didn't work this time. It might work next time, but I don't think so. Um, that's one part of the key components. And the second is, can they divorce themselves from the donor class? Because the donor class has no interest in it. I mean, Hillary would have 
gladly run on Bernie's agenda if she thought she could do it and still get the donor class contribution that she got. She knew she couldn't. So that that's the practical issue for them is how do they uh, how does the Democratic Party handle that a lot of their ideological intellectual infrastructure is very committed to a certain kind of uh, animated identity politics? Um, and if they come up with a positive agenda to counter Trump's or, and work with Trump where they happen to agree, uh, then they would be in a much stronger position. Um, I see bits of that from the Bernie Michael Moore side, uh, but I've only seen bits of it. I see the institutional left mostly uh, committed to demonizing Trump the way they try to demonize W, and that only had limited benefits. I mean, it, you, you'll keep your base animated, but your base lives in states that are already Democratic. And what Trump did good was he looked at the policy the Democratic Party was ignoring, and he ran on. Right. He outlasted Hillary Clinton on right. war and trade, which you never would have guessed two years ago. Um, the Democratic Party has to get back on the right side of that aisle. Or it's, and it's going to deal with the Silicon Valley base. It you know, has its own uh, approach on immigration, its own approach on trade policy. Uh, it, it, coming up with that compromise is going to be a tricky equation party, but it's it's where I think the future holds uh, in that respect. Do you think that that Trump is sincere and thoughtful about his own policies in this that he's run on this election, or is he just a kind of useful idiot and useful iteration that someone with your politics is happy to see uh, won? I think if someone uh, studied uh, well, two different things. One on the on the war policy and on the trade policy, he's been saying variations of that since. Uh, early 80s. He was actually involved in trying to negotiate a peace deal with Contra in the mid-80s, weaseled his way into the process, and the Reagan administration closed him out of it because they believed he was a secret peace name. Um, so I think on those two things, he really cares about it. I think, and I think he, he won't mess with Social Security because he said it's just dumb. So I think on those three, he'll stick to his promises. As to everything else, I think he sees as negotiable, and he'll, and he'll follow whichever, you know, what makes the most sense uh, at the time. Um, I think he cares about those three sets of policies. I think everything else he's more uh, he sees as more secondary uh, to, to any sort of individual legacy. Trump's favorite book is uh, by Robert Kelly called "The Forty Eight Laws of Power," which is a combination of Montesquieu, Machiavelli, Sun Tzu, Von Clausewitz, etc. It's also a favorite book of Fifty Cent to other people. What's interesting is one of the keys in that book to being able to successfully persuade people without them knowing or being persuaded is to convince them that you're an idiot. Which the, the fact that a guy who's never been elected, never held public office before, has managed to topple the two great dynastic powers in modern contemporary American politics and win the presidency and people still think he's an idiot is a gift to his persuasive skills. <laughs> so stuff like, you know, uh, the, the Obama birther stuff, the, you know, insistence that the Central Park Five are still guilty no matter what. I mean – some of this, or, you know, the claims that he saw thousands of people cheering in New Jersey when the towers fell. I mean, some of these are, are lies, right? I mean, am I, what does one make? How do you, how do you assimilate that to your support of him? Uh, I see that as like, uh, you know, the, uh, where he learned his politics in part from Ed Koch in New York. And it's a similar uh, approach of uh, if you apologize, the apology, apology will just be used against you. So you stick to your guns. Um, and that, that's what he does. I think he has a reflexive instinct uh, to stick with his guns because if you do anything differently, you'll get beat up for it. Um, so I, at least during the campaign stage, you may see him behave differently once he's held office. I think what people underestimate about him is his ability to adjust style in presentation. Uh, I think people will be surprised how well he can do that. It'll take him a little bit of time, but uh, I think he'll actually do that much better than people think. Sort of 
I mean, I remember there were a lot of real deep fears when Reagan first got elected. Reagan was in a somewhat similar dynamic. A lot of grave and great doubts about him. Reagan opened up his 1980 campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, so there was more reason to be worried about Reagan. But it turned out most of that turned out not to be as worrisome as people thought. So if the Democrats run – I mean how much of this was that Hillary was a terrible candidate? If the Democrats had run you know, Chris Murphy or uh, you know, somehow Martin O'Malley had squeaked through, would any sort of pretty boring baggage-free Democrat have beaten Trump? No, I don't, I don't think so. There's, well, there's a couple of different components of it. My fundamentals of betting presidential campaigns are based on the idea that people make up their mind about a year before the election, and they either decide change or not change. And when that happens, certain things go into motion, and usually part of it is that the, the incumbent party ends up always nominating the more politician-oriented candidate who's actually a weaker candidate. So it's one of those dynamics where I think it would have been difficult in the primary process for a traditional candidate to win just because it's the way these kind of elections tend to unfold. Uh, in the institutional process. But putting that aside, I thought Bernie actually was probably one of the best candidates the Democratic Party could put up. I think the, uh, the only other guy who could have competed was Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden. Joe would, you know, Biden would have competed. Yeah, Biden would have done well. The, uh, why Obama picked Hillary, whether that was a deal back in 08 or what, I've never understood the logic of it. I, 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 it and Nate Silver made some of the most preposterous arguments for why Hillary was a better general election candidate than Bernie. I was like, there was no, like, she has the worst, I mean, Trump inherited negatives 20 years of being in the public life. That was a different dynamic. Hillary had the worst politically driven negatives in the history of a nominee. And those weren't going to go away. Whereas the more Bernie got PR exposure, he went up. Because he's just a likable guy. People, you know, the, the socialist thing just didn't stick. In the same way you're talking about certain things didn't stick to Trump, and people were surprised by that, there were also a bunch of allegations that were never going to stick to Bernie. Because Bernie seems like that nice uncle. That, you know, okay, he's a professor, he's got some wacky ideas, but nobody thinks of him as threatening, as truly dangerous. They don't think he's really malevolent at heart. Um, and that's why he would have done well. Now, I think whether he'd do well again, I don't know. Um, but uh, but that was any kind of way to fund campaigns without big donor donations. I mean, it was, I mean he had enthusiasm. I mean, the Democratic Party made it. Well, reality is they went with their donor class rather than with their voting base. So, um, last question: uh, How did you get Wesley Snipes off? And uh, two last questions: How did you get Wesley <laughs> off? And and what's your voting secret? What's your formula? How much of it can you share with our listeners? Take those in any order you like. Sure, sure. The uh, I represent you know the, most people with with Wes. Wes had a uh, it, it's understanding where your clients' activities are consistent with a jury's moral sense of not being guilty of a bad, truly bad act. Maybe a mistake, but not a bad act. And I found where that narrative fit and told that story and used the government's own evidence to do it, even though they handpicked the jury and all the other crazy stuff they pulled out. Um, it was all white jury. It was all white jury pool. I mean, my best juror was a uh, corrections officer for 25 years. Um, but the but yet the, it, it's really understanding how people think, understanding how to tell a story, and understanding how to communicate that story through evidence, and uh, and doing it in a way that everyone else doesn't do as well. In part, it's because a large number, I'm uh, part of the professional class, and the lawyers are part of it as well, have lost connection to a lot of ordinary people who sit on juries. So that's why I have an edge in almost every case I ever have. Uh, you know, by coincidence of life history, I have a broader cross section of understanding so that. I can forecast the jurors do a lot better than other people, uh, than my adversaries. Um, and so that's with Wes. And then the second is with, uh, 
Oh, I mean, with the, the it, there's a lot of measurements. So it's fascinating. There's a sort of eclectic independent guy called Bill Mitchell that has his own following on Twitter that people like Nate Silver and Nate Cohn and Harry Enson love to mock and, you know, attack and Natalie Jackson and Huffington Post and all the rest. But he kept pointing out things that, I, that I've been using for 20 years. You know, yard signs actually matter. Rally size actually matters. TV ratings actually matter. Uh, what, you know, websites people are going to during the general election campaign where Alex Jones is skyrocketing and Huffington Post's collapsing matter. Because what people, primary turnout matters tremendously. Voter registration trends matter tremendously. Who's saying they're enthusiastic in polls matters tremendously. All of that was there and all of it was forecasting that Trump was going to have a friendly and favorable turnout all the way back to January. But it all got ignored and dismissed that what the data journalist class wanted to believe. Um, and that I told people ahead, uh, you know, a, a, about eight months before, I said Hillary's got to have a six-point leader bigger at final media polls or she's going to lose. She was up by four, she lost. She lost by basically half a point swing states, if you will. So, uh, and it was because the polls were mismeasuring uh, rural, not counting older rural blue-collar voters for forever because they decided to weight the polls by by every standard you can except by education and class. I found that. Um, so it was a lot of that kind of data points that were there that anybody could spot. Things like the iSideWid poll, things like consumer sentiment studies, things like GDP growth, things, uh, you know, a lot of the helmet Norfolk studies, which is actually very good. All of them were pointing Trump, 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 Trump. Uh, Alan Lichtman's 13 keys to presidential re-election or election in the first instance, Trump. I mean, it was every single objective model, every single like, metric other than the public opinion polls themselves were forecasting Trump. Um, and the fact that the odds of four to one was just a gift, and it was a gift thanks to the uh, to the confirmation bias of the uh, data journalist media class. <laughs> How are you going to spend the money? Uh, well, assuming retirement kind of money, so the uh, so it just gives me a little bit more polit- economic freedom to take the cases I like and do the do the work that I like. All right, well, Mazel Tov, Bob, and uh, thanks thanks for joining us. We'll, you'll you'll come on again. We'll talk again. Absolutely. All right, take it easy. Take it easy. Bye bye. Los Angeles lawyer and Trump supporter, Bob Barnes. If after listening to this, you are infuriated, enraged, and you now hate me because I gave so much space to a Trump supporter, I definitely want to get your mail. So uh, let us know what upset you the most and what questions I failed to ask him. This special episode of Unorthodox has been brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. It's edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Tulushkin. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe on iTunes, on Twitter at Tablet Mag. Our music is by Golem, and we recorded Argo Studios in New York City. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.